This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. I'm joined today by Mary-Kate Lazotte, who is the author of Gender Differences in Political Opinion, Values, and Political Consequences. This book was published in 2020 by Temple University Press and is a really timely analysis of understanding what we think about as the gender gap um, and how this applies with regard to the choices that voters make, be they men or women, um, and and how they come to some of their conclusions with regard to those vote, vote choices. But I'm going to let Mary-Kate tell us a little bit about that as well as who she is and how she came to this particular project. Thanks for joining me today, Mary-Kate. Thank you for having me. Um, so I uh, have been interested in politics for a very long time. I was a strange child to watch the presidential debates with their parents. Um, and I remember uh, being really interested in the 1992 presidential debate, uh, mostly because I was under the impression that my parents were going to vote for different candidates. And I was astonished by that. Uh, so I've been interested in politics for a very long time uh, and um, interested in the gender gap since graduate school. My dissertation was on gender differences in support for military action. And so uh, when thinking about writing a book and the research that I had done up until the book since my dissertation, I had looked at um, a lot of different public opinion gaps And I had also looked at uh, some gender differences in voting and political knowledge and some other things. And I really wanted to try to take this more singular approach to the gender gap in public opinion and see if values in particular could help to explain a number of gaps rather than some of the more piecemeal research that I and others have done where um, you look at a single gender gap in one area of public opinion. Um, I wanted to look at many different uh, public opinion gaps and get a sense of whether or not there was an overarching explanation that could help us understand more than one gap at a time. And and you do a really nice job of sort of going through that in the book. It's it's really clearly laid out. Um, but I want to first talk about this concept, the gender gap, um, which we can read about in lots of different places and is always something that is discussed, as you note, particularly during presidential election years. Can you first sort of explain this concept um, and also how your research kind of unpacked it? Sure. Uh, So the gender gap is a term that the news media really started to coin uh, in response to the 1980 presidential election exit polls, where women uh, had been more likely to vote for uh, President Carter than uh, Reagan. And it's all about the fact that men and women have these slight differences in their vote choice, uh, in their voter turnout, in their public opinions, um, all these different things, political ideology, party identification, then usually the gender gap is calculated or thought of as the the difference between men and women. Um, Oftentimes in political science research and also in the news media, it's discussed as the difference between uh, men and women's likelihood 
of voting for the Democratic presidential candidate. And so it has ranged uh, from like four percentage points uh, to 12 percentage points, depending on the election. And the same is true for public opinion gaps, uh, where women are slightly more likely to vote for Democratic presidential candidates between four and 12 percentage points. And then on various issues, there are similarly sized gaps. Um, So women tend to be more liberal on a number of issues, um, including support for defense spending, support for environmental protections, support for social safety net programs, um, and other things like that. And so the, the gap is that percentage point difference between men and women's support for either a candidate or um, a position on a particular policy area. And in this book, um, in particular, you are trying to thread together, as you note, sort of looking at this not in a piecemeal way, but in a broader, more integrative way. Um, And you bring together four particular issue umbrellas. I, I, I'd hesitate to say they were just particular issue areas, but umbrella sections um, to try to understand if there is this sort of broad um, gender gap. Can you talk about how you came to these four sort of issue umbrella areas as a way of looking at this particular sort of political behavior discussion? Sure. Uh, Well, some of these are pretty well established in terms of being the more sizable gap. So I look at uh, the use of force, both internationally, meaning defense spending, military action, as well as domestically, meaning death penalty and gun control issues. Uh, I also look at environmental issues. Uh, I look at social welfare programs. Um, And I also look at attitudes towards equal rights for different historically marginalized groups. And for each of those issue areas, there's been some established work showing that there is a gender gap. Um, There are other issue areas where there's a gender gap, um, but there's also issues where there's not really much of a gender gap, such as on abortion attitudes. And so I chose to look at the issues that I knew had been established as having gender differences on them. And you said also that you sort of had come into some of this discussion from your doctoral work on military action and gender differences, which is also the first case study in the in the text. Can you talk about why in particular you've seen and other and other um, scholars and researchers have seen this this kind of um, broader gap in that area? Sure. Uh, so. That's one of the largest, it tends to be the largest gender gap on support for the use of force internationally. So in particular, committing troops to military action. And there's a lot of explanations out there as to why it is that women are less supportive of committing troops. Uh, Some research indicates that uh, women are more sensitive to the loss of life, to casualties during war. 
And that can extend to both military and non-military casualties. Uh, there's some research to indicate that women are less uh, risk acceptant, meaning that uh, they're, they're risk averse to the idea that military action could lead to negative consequences. So could lead to retaliation or um, something of that nature. Um, but there's also some really interesting work that shows that women are not always against uh, military action at times, particularly if there's um, a humanitarian crisis or if there is wide support uh, and international cooperation, such as the United Nations behind a particular uh, military action, then women can be brought on board in, in favor of committing troops or in favor of some sort of action in that way. Uh, but it really varies a lot. Um, and my research is focused on American politics um, and American gender differences. And a lot of these gaps don't necessarily uh, apply to other countries, but the military action gap does appear to often um, emerge in other countries as well. And in terms of the gap itself, in terms of the use of force um, umbrella, mm -hmm. uh, what is the, the gap and does it sort of um, shrink um, as you say, if there's if there's international support or broad based support, um, does that move the gap to be smaller in particular instances? So it can actually shrink the gap. And in some research using fictional uh, reasons for committing troops, we actually see a reversal of the gap, meaning that women become more supportive of trying to intervene when it comes to a humanitarian crisis or when there's international cooperation like the United Nations is involved. Uh, so with real life circumstances, uh, such as um, intervening in Rwanda or other instances of um, humanitarian crisis, we see a much smaller gap around um, two to four percentage points. Whereas um, in other situations that don't involve humanitarian crisis, the gap gets up around 12 to 14 percentage points at times uh, with real life situations. But uh, with fictional situations, we've actually seen the gap can reverse in direction, which is you know pretty fascinating. And, and so in order to sort of take you through each of the, the case studies, the next one you look at is environmental policy. Um, and can you explain a little bit about why this particular issue area, um, which sometimes gets a lot of attention and sometimes gets almost no attention, um, is one that also seems to have a bit of a, of a gender gap? So in, in my book, my argument is that uh, when women think about environmental issues, they think about the consequences of not protecting the environment and the consequences that that will have for their own, you know, families and friends, but also, um, you know, more largely on, on people in terms of 
you know, climate change causing mass migration or food shortages or that sort of thing. And so uh, in, in my mind, the gap on environmental issues comes about because of women's tendency to think about uh, how, you know, other people are going to uh, deal with various situations and making sure that everyone has um, a safe, um, you know, life. So others have done um, some research on the gender gap in environmental attitudes, uh, but it's been a less um, looked at gap in comparison to the other ones that I explore in the book. Uh, there was some older research uh, from the 1990s looking at uh, feminism and attitudes towards the environment. Uh, but generally, much of the other research on the gender gap on environmental attitudes has just noted that there's a difference, but hasn't really explored so much as to why that difference exists, which is uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to look at it. And then, you know, given the partisan discussions about climate change, um, that being a looming issue, I definitely wanted to include environmental issues in the book for that reason as well. Um, the next one you look at are sort of an umbrella of social issues. So my first question is to sort of tease out what those issues generally are, or policy areas are, are, and if there are distinctions within the particular sort of um, silos of those issues as well. Sure. So um, I look at a number of uh, social welfare questions. So things such as, you know, do you prefer that the government provide more or fewer services? So just a general overview of someone's um, belief about how activist a government should be. Um, And then there's specific questions uh, in terms of support for increased spending on welfare, food stamps, um, aid to help the homeless, aid to help the poor. There's a question on um, health insurance or health care and to what extent the government should be involved in that. And then there's also questions about spending, government spending on um, child care, public schools, and Social Security So all of these different measures have been used in past research by others to look at women's and men's attitudes towards uh, social welfare programs. And they are often lumped together um, into a single scale. Um, I look at them mostly separately, but also as a scale um, because they are pretty different. I mean, you know, support for public school spending, you would think would be fairly different from support for uh, spending to help the homeless. Uh, But I actually find, as have others, that generally women are more supportive of more government spending um, or at least maintaining current levels of spending um, in comparison to men who are less likely to want to increase or maintain and Um, more likely to want to decrease government spending. And there just seems to be this general difference where women see government as potentially a means to help solve these sorts of public problems um, or public issues. And 
men are more likely to want less government than more government. Um, And the final case study that you look at is this question of uh, issues around equality, um, which again is kind of an umbrella. Um, So if you can unpack the pieces of that umbrella um, and and talk a little bit about um, what you also found with regard to the gender gap here. Sure. Uh, So I look at attitudes towards uh, gay rights. I look at attitudes towards um, affirmative action. I look at a measure of racial attitudes called racial resentment that's pretty well established in political science. Um, And then finally, I look at support for gender equality. And for each of those issue areas, I find that women are uh, more positive towards these different marginalized groups, um, as well as uh, more supportive of equal rights for these different marginalized groups. Um, The findings are strongest for the questions asking about gay rights. So those questions ask about whether or not uh, gay marriage should be legal, whether or not uh, gays and lesbians should be able to serve openly in the military, whether or not they should be able to adopt children, um, and whether or not there should be government protections um, against discrimination for employment for uh, gay and lesbian individuals. Uh, And I find the largest gender gap uh, on those items. Um, But there are gender differences where women are um, less likely to have racially resentful attitudes towards African-Americans and they're more supportive of affirmative action type policies in comparison to men. And women are um, more supportive of gender equality than men in general. Um, And so in all four of these issue areas, you talk about um, in sort of driving the, the sort of analysis in the book, the question of values, which is also the subtitle of the book, Values and Political Consequences. And this is your sort of developed theory to think about the overarching explanation for gender gaps. Can you explain a little bit about how you sort of define this question um, of value difference? Um, and also what you found in applying this theory to these particular case studies. Sure. Uh, so basically, I, because of some data limitations, I, I look specifically at pro-social values, this idea that uh, women, for whatever reason, whether it be because of socialization or other reasons, are slightly more likely to um, care about others and to have this belief that other people should um, be protected and be safe and be treated equally, that those sorts of beliefs end up influencing how they view these different policy areas. And when it comes to values differences, just like when it comes to the gender gaps, I wasn't expecting to find huge differences. I wasn't expecting to find that 
you know, 90% of women uh, have these pro-social values where they care about other people, where, you know, only 10% of men uh, feel that way. I was, I was looking for these small differences uh, where men and women overlap to a great degree um, in that, you know, many men just like women view the world through this lens of caring what happens to other people and wanting to ensure that people are treated well um, and that they're treated equally. Um, So I use mostly a measure of what's called egalitarianism, this support for societal and individual equality. And I find that it does help to illuminate why some of these gender gaps exist. Um, the, the findings are, are pretty strong. They're stronger for some of the issue areas than for others. Uh, so it, this idea that women think about others' well-being um, and how different policies could negatively or positively affect other people appears to help us to understand why it is that women are uh, less supportive of the death penalty and more supportive of environmental protections. Um, I would say that the least strong findings are for uh, the military issue area, uh, but generally this view of the world, this belief that um, protecting other people's well-being, ensuring that people are treated well, helps us to understand um, particularly the equal rights issues as well as uh, the social welfare issues. And, And so in terms of having an overarching theory um, and understanding of the gender gap, um, as you note, you saw some differences within issue areas themselves. Um, and, and you highlight some of this with regard to questions of use of force, combat troops on the ground versus, say, defense spending. Can you explain a little bit about some of the places where you saw some of this tension? Sure. Uh, so I think that... For certain issue areas, the questions that I look at um, just seem more closely aligned to one another. And so it makes sense that uh, the same explanation would work for, for similar questions. I think for defense spending and for uh, military action, it becomes really complicated when thinking about pro-social values and how that might apply, because you could see how perhaps some people would see increased defense spending as a way of protecting people, um, a way of ensuring the well-being of others. But you could also see others, um, other individuals, look at defense spending as taking, say, funding away from uh, social welfare programs or, um, you know, being a detriment to helping people and ensuring equality. So I think that that's part of the reason why um, there's some more difficulty with those particular questions. 
Um, and I also think that the the question of the military in the abstract is a difficult one for people to answer. Um, defense spending less so, but when it comes to uh, this idea of you know should we use military action versus should we use diplomacy, which is the the general question that I look at. It's a hypothetical question, and I think it really depends on the circumstances and the situation. And so it's a little bit more difficult to ask people that question and to really, you know, figure out what's going on there. I think for particular uh, military situations, uh, it would perhaps be a little bit easier to unpack what's going on and to figure out. Uh, but with hypothetical situations like that, I think it's a little bit difficult because people are going to vary so much in terms of what they support, depending on what the you know external circumstances are. And and you talk about this also in terms of the, the question of um, policy areas around equality, that you saw some, some differences and some tensions in that area, as you noted, with regard to very strong support around um, the LGBTQ community, and then some of the other sort of policy areas. Can you talk a little bit about why that particular area may also include some of these tensions? Sure. I think, uh, I think part of it has to do with some data limitation issues uh, for the affirmative action question, um, it does actually talk about affirmative action for African-Americans. But I think for a lot of women, when they think about affirmative action, they can't help but think about other groups as well, including themselves benefiting from it. So I think in some ways uh, that can be a difficult thing to look at because of what comes to mind when asked that question. I also think that racial attitudes are really complicated. Uh, obviously, white women have a lot of privilege. And as we've seen in recent elections, um, there is this you know, tension between uh, women who might want to support a female candidate or support a candidate who is for policies that would benefit women, but at the same time um, that, you know, white privilege can get in the way. So I think that that creates some, some messiness there in trying to disentangle what's going on. Um, unfortunately, the data didn't include great questions to look at um, policy positions on um, racial issues so much. There's really only the affirmative action and the racial resentment scale, which is unfortunate. There's some other questions that are just incredibly problematic. And so I didn't even want to look at them. Um, but I think with the LGBTQ questions, uh, you know, that's been a more salient issue um, as of late. And I think that that has just been for some reason, uh, more cut and dry for a lot of people in terms of the way that they they think about those issues, whereas perhaps um, some of the, the racial and uh, gender equality issues uh, have more 
sort of historical baggage for people. Um, and so I think that that might be producing some of the tensions with the results and the fact that uh, it's, it's just easier to see LGBTQ rights in this sort of um, more modern light rather than this, you know, historically weighed down uh, view that people might have of gender equality and racial equality issues. But I'm not entirely sure, to be honest. Um, and, and just so everybody knows, can you talk a little bit about where you got the data? Um, because it's it's important to your research and it's a it's a sort of broad, broad data sort of category. Sure. Um, so I use the American National Election Study data, uh, their cumulative data set uh, from 1980 until 2012. And then I also use some additional uh, American National Election Study data from 2016 um, to look at some more recent issues like marriage equality uh, and climate change. But that data is uh, NSF funded. Uh, It's been collected for a very long time, uh, since the late 60s early 70s. Um, It's publicly available data. uh, And it does a, they collect um, a cross section of Americans. Um, They question them every presidential election year. They uh, take a sample and talk to around 2000 people, sometimes more, sometimes less, um, before the presidential election takes place. And then also after the presidential election takes place. And a subset of that data that's collected every presidential election year and sometimes midterm election year is asked the same subset of questions every single time uh, the survey is put forth. And all of that data across all of those years is then combined into this one data set. And so I, I control for Um, the type of presidential administration in the analysis, whether or not there's a Republican um, president in the White House um, to try to get at this, you know, issue of there being a a long number of years that the data is collected across. But that's, you know, is really exciting that the same questions are being asked over and over again, but at the same time, it creates certain limitations because certain questions um, you know, have never been asked or um, were asked in a somewhat problematic way now that we look back on it. Um, But you're sort of stuck with the way that it was worded, you know, 20 years ago or more so. And, and again, this is, I, I mean, I've looked at it, many political scientists have looked at the data for whatever reasons. Um, So it's, it's a substantial data set, but as you note, it also has its limitations. Um, and I wanted to ask you, uh, the, the sort of broader question that I have in sort of exploring the questions of the gender gap and the policy areas that you look at. And this is what you talk about also in the conclusion, um, that there, as you note, gender differences in public opinion significantly contribute to the gender gap in party ID. And I'd really love to hear uh, about how, we should think about gender differences, the gender gap, and particularly party identification. 
Sure. Uh, well, I think that, you know, we, we've seen for a long time in the political science research and, and obviously with the news coverage of various presidential elections that women tend to vote for uh, Democratic candidates. And a lot of that is because women are more likely to identify as Democrats. And there's a lot of really exciting research out there as to why and when that started to occur. Um, a lot of that research uh, I haven't conducted, but others have looked at how um, changes in the South uh, with the you know modern Republican Party merging with the religious right. Um, and how that influenced the um, party identification of women versus men. Uh, but my interest was in looking at how gender differences in policy positions actually contributes to partisanship and uh, that partisan gender gap. So the fact that women are more likely to identify as Democrats um, and to vote for Democratic candidates because the Democratic Party better aligns with their own issue positions. And so, you know, women see the Democratic Party as being similar to themselves when it comes to funding for public schools, funding to help the poor, uh, you know, funding to uh, protect the environment, uh, wanting to, you know, limit defense spending rather than increase it, those sorts of um policy positions, as well as the Democratic Party being seen as the party that champions the rights of the historically marginalized. And so although there's a lot of great research out there looking at, you know, who is more likely to identify as a Democrat or Republican and, you know, who independents are and all of those sorts of things, I really wanted to get down to how people's issue positions, um, their policy positions end up predicting how they um, identify in terms of being a Democrat or Republican. And, and in that regard, what, what did you find as the connection between um, the gender differences in public opinion, as you know, with regard to sort of the Democratic Party, um, but also with regard to the, the flip side of that being that, you know, there's a lot of discussion of how men left the Democratic Party over the course of a number of years, whereas women kind of remained in the Democratic Party because of issue saliency. Right. Uh, so I find that a number of the issues that I look at in the previous chapters of the book um, contribute to the gender gap and why it is that women identify as Democrats and men are less likely to do so. Um, in particular, dispense spending, um, environmental policies, uh, the equal rights policies, and the biggest um, reason, according to my analysis, appears to be the social welfare issues. So the government spending to help the poor on public schools, um, you know, government involvement in providing health care and more services. That seems to be the number one reason why women are more likely to identify as Democrats, whereas 
um, men are, you know, less likely to do so. So I would really argue that women are, are generally looking for the government to provide this social safety net. Um, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, women have stayed with the Democratic Party, um, why there's that gender gap in identification, whereas uh, men, you know, are, are less likely to look to government to provide those sorts of programs and services. And in your research, and and I know a lot of this, as you say, some of it was it was not exactly what you expected in terms of finding some of these gaps. What was the most ex- sort of surprising outcome that you found as you were going through this research? Uh, I would say one of the more surprising findings had to do with the fact that uh, the social safety net was so important. Um, I think that that was a little bit surprising given that it doesn't always get a lot of attention. I think right right now um, it is getting a lot of attention in terms of, you know, the government providing uh, services and support for its citizens. But generally a lot of times uh, during elections, you know, when people are paying the most attention to politics, uh, we're often talking about other issues um, such as foreign policy, uh, or we see the candidates talking about um, issues of foreign policy rather than of social welfare programs. So I was a little bit surprised by that. Um, I was also surprised, and I haven't talked about this um, yet here, but I look at a couple of other explanations in comparison to the values explanation. Um, I look at whether or not motherhood helps us to understand some of these gender gaps. And the evidence is really mixed um, for parenthood and and motherhood. It's significant in a few of the models, but um, not that many. Um, Same thing with uh, economic status. So I, I looked at that as a possible explanation. The fact that women are more likely to have, um, a lower socioeconomic status, uh, that's not a great predictor, but I was surprised by the fact that, um, the measure that I use for feminist identity, which is limited in a lot of ways was actually a really great predictor of a lot of these gender gaps. And so there's some old research suggesting, that we shouldn't call it the gender gap, we should call it the feminist gap. And I was surprised to find some support for that. Um, I still think the values explanation does a better job, but I don't necessarily think that they're mutually exclusive. Um, It's very likely that feminists uh, would rate highly on pro-social values, that they care a lot about um, equality and uh, protecting the well-being of others. And so um, I think that th- that's interesting because we don't necessarily talk about feminism um, or feminist identity a lot up until the recent uh, 2016 presidential election when I think it started to gain a little bit more attention and traction again. Uh, but that was definitely one of the major surprising findings to, to find so much support for that alternative explanation. And in terms of sort of casting a broader theoretical framework around this, 
one of the the ways that you are also discussing the social safety net is as that a social safety net, which is not necessarily what we hear politicians when they're running for office talk about policies in that broad umbrella. They may speak specifically, say, about healthcare policy recently, um, or you know, reforms to social security, but they don't broadly speak about a social safety net, whereas we often hear broad discussions of, say, lowering or raising taxes. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how those frames also contribute potentially to some of the possibly difficulties in the data? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that, um, yeah, in the American context, we often don't see a discussion of a broad social safety net. We we see certain particular uh, domestic policies become salient during an election where um, it gets a lot of attention, but not this overarching idea. And I do think that that's a difficulty in the data um, because, but there are these general questions, like I mentioned before, this, you know, general question about whether or not you support uh, more government services or less. Um, There's also a question about whether or not you think the government should do more to guarantee a certain standard of living for all Americans. And I think those sorts of questions, although they might not um, have been part of the you know, larger political discourse that we see in elections that I think that they are tapping into something very real um, among Americans and how they view the role of government uh, and, you know, whether or not government should ensure that, you know, in general, people um, are not, you know, suffering or destitute. Uh, But it is a a problem with the data that um, it doesn't, actually, you know, get at that issue in a more um, specific way. And and so given the broad sort of discussion of both data and gender and sort of value theories, Mary-Kate, what are you working on now? Uh, I have a number of projects that I'm working on now. Uh, I'm doing some work with a couple of co-authors, Richard Eichenberg and Richard Stoll on uh, gender differences in foreign policy attitudes. Uh, So we uh, just had a piece published on um, support for gender equality policy as part of a foreign policy package so the idea that um, the American government would want to promote gender equality worldwide and pursue policies um, that do that and whether or not there's a lot of support among American citizens for that. And we find that uh, women are, are more likely to support those types of policies in the foreign policy arena. Um, I'm also working on some other things, including uh, trying to understand uh, party polarization and how gender may help us to understand uh, political and party polarization in a more nuanced way. Uh, So that work with um, Heather Anderson is really interesting, and we actually find 
surprisingly to us that women are a little bit more um, politically polarized than men, which um, you might, you know, think is a little bit strange because we think of women as being, you know, compromising and coming together, but they actually tend to um, have more positive views of their in party and more negative views of their out party. And so by our measure, they're more politically polarized. Um, and we use a measure that's well established. Um, and then I have um, a number of other projects. I'm interested in um, the gender gap on immigration attitudes and immigration policy uh, because of the fact that that be- has become salient in the 2016 election and during the um, Trump administration. And I'm looking forward to data becoming available to look at gender differences uh, in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, The polls right now look as though women are are more likely than men to want to uh, stay at home and social distance, that they're more likely to be afraid that uh, states will open up too quickly. Um, and so I'm interested in trying to, um, you know, look at that and, and figure out uh, why that is that men are much more likely to be concerned about the economy, while women are more likely to uh, be concerned about opening up too early. And so if any of these become a book, will you come back on the New Books Network and talk to me about them? Oh, definitely. I would love to. Um, the the uh, foreign policy stuff with um, Eichenberg and Stoll, we've, you know, talked about potentially writing a book. Uh, we have this really interesting data set and we have some some other projects um, that we're interested in, in doing with that data to try to understand uh kind of going back to my, you know, initial dissertation roots to try to understand uh, why there's a gender gap in foreign policy attitudes more generally. Uh, So yeah, hopefully that will in fact turn into a book. Um, That's the plan right now, but uh, you know, we're at the very early stages, but yeah, I I would love to definitely come back and talk more about it. Well, I would, I would like to learn more about it from you and your co-authors. So I look forward to reading that book when it comes out and talking to you and your co-authors about it. Great. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today, Mary-Kate Lizotte, um, author of Gender Differences in Public Opinion, Values, and Political Consequences. This is published um, by Temple University Press in 2020 and is available at the Temple University Press website and whatever other online retailers you might want to buy a book from. Is that correct? Yes, as far as I know. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me today, Mary-Kate. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.